Hello, my history nerds, and welcome to the Historia podcast. My name is Stephanie, and this is episode 19, Bonnie and Clyde. Before I get into the episode, I just wanted to take a quick moment to wish you all a very happy new year filled with love, happiness, and success. And before we get into the shameless plugs, I do have to let you know that um, in this episode, we will be talking about sexual assault, amputations, and murder, so maybe save this one for when the kids are not around. If you are a victim of sexual assault or know somebody who is and needs help, I've included the link to Ending Violence, which is an association here in Canada that aims to end gender-based violence and has an expansive catalog of numbers for services in each province. Now, let's get into our shameless plug, shall we? Membership is available on Patreon, however, if you wish to donate to the podcast without a monthly commitment, you can do so through the buy me, uh, buy me a Coffee donation feature. Additionally, citations are available on Buy Me A Coffee for just $2, and uh, these are obviously free for Patreon members, and um, if you... Uh, if you can't make a donation, which I completely understand because in this fucking economy, um, honestly, best thing you could do, please rate the podcast or, you know, you know, subscribe, obviously, please. And just share these with, share the podcast with your friends and family. The more people who hear us, the better. Um, for those who do become members, you can have access to mini-episodes and upcoming video content, like a new series I'm starting where I sit around with my friends and, you know, we just sit in the car and eat eat coffee, drink coffee, and just shoot the shit. Um, and also, I am working on getting a service, well, not getting a service, but I'm trying to essentially do reaction videos where I'm going to- I love watching old movies, so I wanted to have a chance to watch a lot that I, in all honesty, have never watched before. I've discovered a whole new catalog of things and I keep writing down names of movies that I wanted to watch during COVID and though that never fucking happened because I was sleeping half the time. Um, but yeah, you know, we'll just watch movies and you can see me react to shit if you want to. I don't know. Is that a thing? Do people still do that? Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you will also get access to a content calendar so you know when episodes are being released and any other fun things that I'm working on. And you'll also get um, access to a private Facebook and Instagram group and the citations and all that fun stuff. So now that we've gotten our shameless plug out of the way, uh, Get your drinks ready, everybody. For this episode, I'm going to be drinking a highball, and as always, the recipe can be found on the Instagram page, and the links to that and everything else is in the show notes below. When we think of the Depression era, there are a few notorious names that we automatically think about, and these are two of them. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910, in Rowena, Texas. Her father passed away when she was four years old, and the remaining family moved to West Dallas, where her mother supported the family by becoming a seamstress. When she was in her second year of high school, so grade 10 people, 
she met Roy Thornton. They then dropped out of high school and got married on September 25th, 1926, just six days before her 16th birthday. Their marriage was plagued by his constant issues with the law and frequent absences, and even though they separated, they were never legally divorced. The last time they saw each other was 1929, and it was even rumored that when she died, she still had her she was still wearing her wedding ring, which I mean, cute. <laughs> After they separated, Moni Moni, who's Moni? Bonnie moved back to Dallas, where she became a waitress, and in an odd form of twisted fate, one of her regular customers, Ted Hinton, who was a postal worker at the time, would eventually join the Dallas County Police Force in 1932, and would be a part of the posse that would later kill Bonnie and Clyde. Roy would, uh, would be killed a few years later in 1937 when he tried to escape Huntsville State Prison. Clyde Chestnut Champion Barrow was born on March 24th, 1909 in Gibson, Texas, and was, and was one of seven children. The entire family moved to Dallas in the early 1920s, and like many migrants at the time, settled in the slums of West Dallas. They spent the first few months living under their wagon before saving up enough money to buy a tent. Clyde was first arrested at the age of 17 when he tried to run away from police officers who were sent to confront him about a rental car he failed to return in time. The second time he was arrested, along with his brother Buck, for possessing stolen turkeys. Now, I know you might be thinking there and saying, didn't he have a job? Well, he didn't just go around stealing things all the time. Between 1927 and 1929, he did hold a string of small jobs, but he did continue to rob safes and stores and steal cars. There are many different accounts as to how Bonnie and Clyde met. The most credible account was that they met on January 5th, 1930, at the home of their mutual friend, Clarence Clay. Clyde came to visit while Bonnie was there to help Clarence, who was recovering from a broken arm. They instantly fell in love and were inseparable until Clyde got arrested for auto theft. He was then sent to Eastham Farm, uh, sorry, Eastham Prison Farm in April of 1930. He was only 21 years old. And he would attempt to escape shortly after arriving using a weapon Bonnie smuggled in for him, but he was captured shortly after. It is here at Eastham that Clyde's villain arc story would be created. While Clyde was there, he was sexually assaulted by a fellow inmate. I unfortunately could not find the name of this inmate in multiple sources that I looked at, but Clyde would later kill him by smashing his head in with a pipe, and a fellow inmate who was serving a life sentence took responsibility for what would be Clyde Barrow's first murder. Clyde tried to avoid doing hard labor, 
and severed two of his toes, giving him a limp for the rest of his life. But his actions were unnecessary. Unknowing to him, his mother was successfully able to petition for his release, and on February 6, 1932, he was able to leave the prison six days after removing his toes. Ralph Fultz, who was Clyde's fellow inmate at Eastham and who would eventually become a, a member of the Barrow Gang, said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. Even Clyde's sister Maria said that something awful must have happened to him when he was in prison because he wasn't the same person when he came out. After, his after he was released, he began robbing gas stations and grocery stores at an alarming rate, and it even surpassed the amount of banks robbed by the gang, um, you know, when they were just out there doing their thing. Uh, his weapon of choice was an M19 Browing automatic rifle, which I'm just going to refer to as a bar going forward because that's just way too many fucking words to say. According to biographer John Neal Phillips, Clyde's goal was not to gain fame or fortune, but to get revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuse he received while incarcerated. And before we get into the timeline events of the gang, you know, by each year, it's important that we also know the characters. Besides Bonnie and Clyde, the gang comprised of Marvin Buck Barrow, Clyde's older brother, Blanche Barrow, Marvin's wife, William Daniel Jones, a Barrow family friend who I also refer to as W.D. or simply as Jones, as some of the sources named him as, Henry Methvin, who, I mean, if you ever actually get a chance to look at a picture of Henry Methvin, oof, damn he cute. <laughs> okay. Who else is there? Raymond Hamilton, Joe uh, Poliner, and, as you know, Ralph Fultz. So continuing with the events of 1932, after leaving Eastham, Clyde and Ralph Fultz began robbing stores and gas stations, intending to collect enough money and firearms to raid Eastham Prison. On April 19th, Bonnie and Fultz were arrested while trying to rob a hardware store. Bonnie would be released a few months later, but Fultz would never return to the gang. On April 30th, Barrow acted as the getaway driver for a group that was attempting to rob a store in Hillsboro, Texas. However, during that robbery, the store owner, J.N. Busher, was shot and killed and his wife would falsely identify Barrow as the person who, you know, killed her husband. On August 5th, Barrow, Raymond Hamilton, and Ross Dyer were caught drinking moonshine out of a, outside of Country Dance in Stringham, Oklahoma, by Sheriff C.J. Maxwell and Deputy Eugene C. Moore in the parking lot. The groups then exchanged, engaged in a shootout that would injure Maxwell and kill Moore, making him the first of about nine police officers that the gang would have killed. On Christmas Eve, 
W.D. Jones joins the Barrow Gang, and on Christmas Day, they murdered Doyle Johnson for his car. Going forward, if I ever refer to the Fab Three, I'm referring to Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones. On January 6, 1933, Clyde killed Malcolm Davis, the Tarrant County deputy, after he, Bonnie, and Jones stumbled into a trap set for another gang. On March 22nd, Buck was released from jail with a full pardon. He and his wife Blanche then moved in with the Fab Three at their hideout, located at 3347 Half Oak Ridge Drive in Joplin, Missouri. They would stay at this residence for 12 days. Now, according to the, fam to the Barrow family sources, they claimed that Buck and Blanche traveled there to persuade them to surrender to the law. But while they were there, they threw some very loud, alcohol-fueled card games. And according to Blanche, they bought a case of beer every day. The men would walk in and out of the house at all hours of the day of night, which my mother would not approve of at all. And... One night, while Clyde was cleaning his gun, he accidentally fired it, and while none of the neighbors approached the house, someone did report it to the police. On April 13th, the Joplin Police Department assembled a five-man force comprised of, of Detective Henry L. McGinnis, Constable J.W. Harriman, and... Hi sorry, Highway Patrol Sergeant J.B. Keller and two other unnamed individuals to confront what they suspected were bootleggers. The three male members of the gang had a shootout with the police. McGinnis was instantly killed, Harriman was fatally injured, and Keller was also injured after Clyde shot at Keller as he hid behind a tree. And so he essentially shot at, the, shot at the tree and caused it to splinter. And this, these shards would then have, were then embedded in the sergeant's face. The last thing that some of them saw was the gang driving away and grabbing Bonnie, who was running after her dog, Snowball. And so after the gang had left and the police searched the house, they found a few things. They found Buck's uh, parole papers, vast amounts of weapons, a handwritten poem, uh, sorry, a handwritten poem penned by Bonnie, and a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. And it's from these rolls of film that we get the infamous photos of Bonnie posing with a gun and with a cigar in her mouth. The pictures of Jones sitting on the floor next to their many guns that were leaned up against the car. And the pictures of Bonnie and Clyde playing around with the guns, him lifting her up, or the infamous one of him kissing her. For the next three months, they went on the run. They attempted to rob a bank in Lucerne, Indiana. And if I mispronounced that, I'm very sorry. Uh, they successfully robbed another, ba uh, another bank in Okabina, Okabina, Minnesota. 
Minnesota. They kidnapped uh, Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone while trying to steal Mr. Darby's car. They dropped them far away from their home and gave them some money to help them get back. And now, as kind as that action was, they had no problem shooting at somebody who got in their way. And it's these senseless killings that caused the public opinion of them to change. Because the photos were published, it made it difficult for them to hide from the law, leading to many days of living outdoors. And while enjoying the bounties that Gaia has bestowed upon us, um, you know, emotions were running quite high. And so after an argument, Jones had actually stolen the car and he just like, you know, he ran away somewhere. But he did return on June 8th. On June 10th, the Fab Three were in an accident after Clyde failed to see a sign about bridge, about bridge work ahead, and the car flipped into a ravine. It isn't confirmed if it was caused by a fire or by the battery acid, but Bonnie sustained third-degree burns on her right leg, and according to Jones, she was burned so bad, none of us thought she would live. The hide on her right leg was gone from her hip to her ankle. I could see her bones at places. This injury made it difficult for Bonnie to walk. She had to either hop on her good leg or be carried by Clyde. And after getting help from a nearby family farm, they kidnapped the sheriff and the city marshal of uh, Collinsworth County and left them outside Eric, Oklahoma, handcuffed and barbed-wired to a tree. They then traveled to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they met up with Buck and Blanche in a tourist camping area, but had to flee after Buck and Jones fucked up a robbery and murdered the, the town marshal in Alma. In July, they went to the Red Crown Tourist Court, just south of Platte City, Missouri, where they rented out two cabins that were connected by the garage. Just south of their cabin was the Red Crown Tavern, which was very popular with the highway patrolmen. The gang sent Blanche in to register them as three guests. However, the owner, Neil Hauser, saw five people. There were a few other details he claimed were weird when he informed Captain William Baxter about them. He said that the driver backed into the garage gangster style, which essentially, which was essentially back parking. And if that's the case, then I'm going to be arrested one of these fucking days because that's the only way I park. Um, Blanche also paid for the cabin, five meals and five beers with coins. Uh, they taped, which I mean, those two, not very weird, but I mean... Okay. They taped newspapers to the windows. Okay, that part is weird. Very weird. But the weirdest part of it all is that Blanche scandalously came into the office to pay for five more meals wearing pants. And more specifically, she was wearing Jodhpur riding breeches. And if you've ever seen them, they are beautiful pants. <laughs> But pants, woman, pants. How dare thee. 
Clyde and Jones went into town to purchase some supplies like cheese, crackers, and bandages, and more importantly, atropine sulfate to treat Bonnie's leg. Unknowingly, the pharmacist informed Sheriff Holt Coffee about the purchase, who then ordered that the cabins be monitored. He was actually informed by law enforcement in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas about to look out for strangers looking for these types of supplies. He then contacted Captain William Baxter, who arranged for reinforcements to come in from Kansas City, along with an armored car. The police arrived at the cabin around 11 p.m. with a bunch of submachine guns, which I think is quite excessive, but who am I to tell you how to do your job? Um, there was yet another gunfight, but the police officer's Thompson machine guns had nothing on Clyde's bar. Well, his bar rifle. The gang was able to escape after a bullet short-circuited the horn of the armored car, and the police mistook this as a signal to uh, for a ceasefire. By some weird miracle, Buck survived after he was after a bullet blasted a large hole in his forehead that left his brain exposed, and Blanche was nearly blinded by flying glass fragments. The Barrow Gang then camped out in Dexfield Park, which was an abandoned amusement park. Buck was subconscious, and he was able to talk and eat, but he had lost so much blood that they thought he was going to die. So Clyde and Jones dug a grave for him. And so the locals in that area noticed a lot of bloody bandages and decided to notify the police, who correctly assumed that it was the Barrow Gang. A group of a hundred spectators and police officers surrounded the area and began opening fire. Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones were able to escape on foot, while Buck and the Jodhpur riding pants Ware and Blanche were captured. Buck died five days later from a combination of pneumonia and the very obvious hole in his head at King's Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. Over the next six weeks, the Fab Three moved outside of their comfort zone, going west to Colorado, Minnesota, and Mississippi, while continuing to commit armed robberies. They robbed another armory on August 20th in Platteville, Illinois, um, before heading down to Texas in early September to see their families. Now, Jones's mother had moved to Houston, so he separated from Bonnie and Clyde, but he was later arrested in Houston on November 16th. While in Dallas, Clyde continued to carry out robberies while his family helped to nurse Bonnie back to health. On November 22nd, Bonnie and Clyde traveled to Sowers, Texas to, vis to visit family. When approaching the house, Clyde felt that something was not right, and he drove past his family. This is when Dallas Sheriff Smoot, Sch Smoot Schmidt and Deputy... Bob Alcorn, along with our very new Ted Hinton, who were hiding uh, just nearby, stood up and opened fire. 
And while luckily nobody in the family was hurt, a bullet from a bar gun passed through the car and hit both Bonnie and Clyde. On November 28th, the Dallas Grand Jury issued a warrant for Bonnie and Clyde for the murder of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis, who Barrow had killed in January. And I know that that's a lot, but that's only 1933, and we gotta move on to 1934. Now, on January 16th, Clyde fulfilled his goal of, embarrass of embarrassing the Texas prison system when he carried out his plan to help Henry Methvin, Raymond Hamilton, and several others escape, 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 escape from Eastern Prison. I can't talk today. Um, a new member of the gang, Joel Palmer, shot Major Joe Crossan while he was escaping. Uh, Crossan would later die in hospital a few days later. And it's because of Palmer's actions that the state and federal governments were just out for blood. The prison chief, Lee Simmons, promised Crossan while he was in the hospital that each of those involved would be captured and killed. And he damn well kept that promise because all with the exception of one person outside of Bonnie and Clyde were captured and killed in a very short period of time following that. Frank Hanmer was a former Texas Ranger who was feared and greatly respected. He was contacted by the Texas Deputy of Corrections, sorry, Texas Department of Corrections, and asked to hunt down the Barrow Gang. On April 1st, Highway Patrol H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant Wheeler saw a car on the side of the road by the intersection of Route 114 and Dove Road and stopped to help what they thought was someone who, you know, just maybe got a flat tire and they needed some help. As they approached the Barrow Gang's car, Clyde, Methven, and according to an eyewitness, Bonnie, opened fire, killing both officers. The eyewitness recounted that it was Bonnie who fired the fatal shot, which fueled headlines. This tale took on a life of its own. Some papers claiming the eyewitness said that Bonnie laughed by the way at the way Murphy's head bounced like a rubber ball when she shot him. The police even claimed they found cigars with tiny teeth marks on them that had to belong to Bonnie. These statements sent the press into a frenzy, fueled even more when several days later, Murphy's fiance showed up to his funeral wearing her intended wedding dress. The eyewitness's statement was later discredited, but the damage was already done. The highway patrol offered a $1,000 reward for their dead bodies, with an additional 500 being offered by Governor Ma Ferguson. Five days later, Barrow and Methvin killed William Campbell, a 60-year-old retired constable causing even more outcries from the public. In Commerce, Oklahoma, they kidnapped 
police chief Percy Boyd and drove over the state lines into Kansas, where they dropped him off with a clean shirt, a few dollars, and a request from Bonnie asking him to please tell everyone that she does not smoke cigars. Boyd could identify Bonnie and Clyde, but he didn't know who Methvin was. So the arrest warrant for William Campbell's death was for Clyde Barrow, Bonnie Parker, and John Doe. The Dallas Journal ran a cartoon that I'll add to the Instagram page for you to see, and it is essentially an electric chair with a reserve sign on it with Bonnie and Clyde's names. Now, Frank Hammer had been tracking the gang since February and was essentially studying their movements. He learned that they liked to stay close to state lines, taking advantage of a, rule, of a rule that law enforcement could not pursue a suspect into another jurisdiction. He also learned that their itineraries seemed to be planned around family visits, but what he didn't know was that they did have another family visit planned, and that was to see Methvin's family. On May 20 on May 19th, sorry, the gang stopped at a diner and Methvin was sent to in to get some sandwiches. While at the counter, a police car passed by which spooked Clyde and he bolted, leaving Methvin behind. Methvin then hitchhiked his way to his parents because that was actually the gang's designated meetup spot. What the gang didn't know was that two months before their visit, Hammer contacted Sheriff Henderson Jordan, asking him to let them know if Bonnie and Clyde ever came into town. Methvin's father, Ivy, approached the police, agreeing on the condition that Henry would not receive the death penalty for the grapevine officers. On May 21st, Hammer received word that Bonnie and Clyde had arrived. It was time for Ivy Methvin to tell his son, Henry, about the deal he had made. Then the plan had to be set. Hammer arrived with his team. Ted Hinton, the postal worker turned cop who was Bonnie's regular customer when she was a waitress. Alcorn, B.M., Manny Galt, and Louisiana officers Henderson Johnson and Pre Prentice Morrill Oakley. They planned to hide along a designated stretch of highway. As bait, Ivy Methvin pulled his truck off onto the side of the road and removed a tire, knowing that Clyde would pull over to help him. Just after 9 a.m., the posse heard the hum of a Ford V8 and prepared, knowing very well that it had to be Clyde. And they were right. Clyde did slow down with the intention of stopping to help Ivy. It was at this point that Hammer stood up, hoping that he could give the couple a chance to surrender. But the scared Officer Oakley fired before the order was given, hitting Barrow in the head and killing him instantly. The officers then heard Bonnie's blood-curdling scream. 
and at this point, Clyde's body relaxed a bit and his foot moved, fell off of the clutch, causing the car to move forward at a slow pace. The officers thought that he was still alive, and as a result, they pumped 130 bullets into the car. Ted Hinton then took out a video camera that was given to him and took a video of the scene after the shooting. I've made an edited reel of this and I'm going to be posting it onto the, in, onto the Instagram account if you'd like to take a look at it. Galt and Alcorn were left to guard the scene while everyone went to call the bo their bosses and tell them the good news. Bonnie and Clyde were dead. News quickly spread around the town about what had happened and a crowd began to form. It began it became very difficult for them to ha to handle. When the coroner arrived, they said nearly everybody had begun collecting souvenirs such as shell casings, slivers of glass from the shattered car windows, and bloody pieces of Bonnie's clothing and hair. One eager man had opened his pocket knife up and was reaching into the car to cut off Clyde's left ear and trigger finger. The car was towed, with the bodies still inside it, to the Conquer Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor for all your needs, dead or alive. Now, if you remember back in 1933, the gang kidnapped Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone. Well, turns out Mr. Darby was an undertaker. And after finding out what he did for a living, Bonnie laughed and said that one day he'd be working on her. And that's exactly what he did. The primary undertaker, C.F. Boot Bailey, needed a lot of help. According to the coroner's report, Clyde's body had 17 entrance wounds, while Bonnie's had 27. Bonnie and Clyde had wished to be buried together, but this wish was denied by her family. Approximately 10,000 people attended Clyde's funeral, while almost 20,000 attended Bonnie's. Clyde is currently laid to rest next to his brother, Buck, and Bonnie's niece and last surviving relative has been petitioning to move her body next to Clyde so that they could be buried together as they wish. Now, before I actually close off the episode, we have to kind of sit there and wonder, what is it about these two that has just held everyone for all of these years? And I guess you could really say that it's because the two of them lived in an area where, sorry, in an era where everything was pretty fucking shitty. You're in the middle of Prohibition. The economy has just collapsed. There's There was the Dust Bowl, so hey, there's no fucking food either. I mean, it must have been tough. But I think the biggest thing is, is that they these were two kids who were in their mid-twenties. I mean, when Clyde, when they, when Bonnie and Clyde were killed, Bonnie was only 23 Clyde was 25. You know, he well, he had just turned 25. Bonnie was going to be 24. I mean, 
it's insane to think that these were, I mean, in a way to put it, I mean, you can't necessarily say that they were kids, but I mean, by our standards, you can't really say that they were kids. I mean, at that point in time, they'd be considered full-fledged adults. But it's insane to think that this is what you had to do in order to survive. And I don't know, it's kind of, I don't really know if I have the words to explain it. It's just so interesting to see that the this is the extent that they had gone to. But whether they wanted it or not, they became famous. And they were fucking fantastic for it. They went against the status quo. I mean, Bonnie was still legally married, but here she is falling in, madly in love with another man. Having pictures of, like, you know, you see them kissing. What else are they doing? They're drinking. They're having sex. It's insane to think that, you know, people, I, th I think that's why her funeral, there, there were so many, there were so many more attendants in, at her funeral. Because, okay, you have John Dillinger, you have, you know, God knows who else. Ma Baker's fucking old as hell. Nobody gives a shit about her. But Bonnie, she was beautiful. She was young. She was... It's the whole fact that you have this beautiful girl who's out here slinging guns and shooting police officers and smoking cigars. It's... It's fantastic. And I think that... I think it's Bonnie. Bonnie is the reason why... They are so famous. But, you know, that's just me and my after-episode ramblings. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, notes for all of that, uh, links for all of that is in the show notes below. Um, and as always, please uh, rate, review, subscribe all that kind of fun stuff. Please share the episode with your friends and family. Thank you guys all very much. Um, and also before I go, I really do hope that my life will not be hectic and as much as it usually has been so that I can commit to always getting these episodes out on time. I am very slowly creating another system for myself there have been changes at work as well, so I'm very happy about that and we'll see how that goes. And my hope is, is that with these changes I ha and this sort of system that I've created for myself that I will be able to stick to it. So, um, yeah, I really do hope that I will be able to continuously get these episodes out for you. Um, but yeah, thank you guys again very much for everything. And I will talk to you guys very soon. Thank you.